Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. Welcome to Episode 9 of Sleep Talk. I'm David Cunnington and I'm joined again by my co-host, Dr. Moira Junger. Hello, everyone. And this episode, we're also joined by Dr. Sean Kane. And Sean's a lecturer at Harvard Medical School and a tenured senior lecturer in the School of Psychological Sciences at Monash University. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. We really look forward to your input. And as a recognised expert in the field of sleep and circadian rhythms, where you've really spent a career researching in this area, we really welcome your input into what we're going to be talking about today. Very happy to be here, David. So one of the common things we see in the clinic is teenagers who can't get out of bed in the morning. So sometimes it's uh, can't get out of bed and can't get to school, or sometimes it's up late and on their smartphones not being able to get to sleep. So that's what we're going to try and talk about in the theme of this month's episode. And teens, and what's the impact of screens and light on sleep? And it's not just teens that are exposed to screens. That's what I was about to jump in and say. I think... Um, I think us adults are just as um, as guilty. Um, we've all got screens, whether you're a 10-year-old or an 80-year-old. Across the board at the moment, a lot of people are on their devices and at all hours of the day. Teens is a really interesting one. I think that's sort of a, a peak period for, for screen use and for, you know, breaking out and new, new patterns, staying up later anyway, which we'll discuss in a minute. Um, but I'm particularly, I want this to be not just teens and screens, but thinking about all of us. And I think it's nice. We didn't really get any education around it, um, but hopefully the younger people can and, get, and learn from, from the start how to do things better, how to have less impact on their health. And you guys in researching in this area, Sean, you've been doing a great job of getting the word out that light's important to sleep and has an impact on sleep. People seem to be a bit more aware of it. Sure. It's funny to me. I, I run across people all the time who seem to be aware. They've seen something on TV. They've heard something about the impact of light, the negative impact on sleep. I was in a shop uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and the shop owner said someone was coming in. They wanted to install some blue LED lights in their ceiling, and they said, no, I don't want to do that. I've heard it's bad for sleep. So the message is getting out there. I know I've done a few um, radio interviews in the past just about this topic, so it's it's of interest to the general public. So we'll try and get to the bottom of it and get some good advice for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I look forward to unravelling it over the next sort of half hour or so because there's lots of stuff. It's just so great for us as clinicians and you as a researcher to maybe just to really have a good discussion around it because, yes, the information's getting out there, but I'm just wondering how accurate it is or how balanced it is. Sometimes people are putting too much emphasis on the light and not enough on other things and I'd love to talk about that later. So what's been topical, what's been in the news this month with sleep? Well, as you know, you and I both were involved in writing an article and being interviewed for an article that was in Juice Daily on their uh, blog site on tips for getting back to sleep in the middle of the night. And like often happens, it got picked up by the media. And what happened then, Moira? Yeah, well, Channel 9 picked it up and today Extra asked me to come along for a, for a brief stint and, and they just wanted to flesh it out a little bit more, talking about that, that concept of middle of the night insomnia rather than, because mostly people focus a lot on sleep initiation and that being a problem, sleep onset. Yeah, so that was kind of exciting. I liked the podcast better. I liked, my favourite joke is I've got a good face for radio. <laughs> they didn't seem to laugh at that joke. You did a fantastic job <laughs> and well done getting out those messages about sleep. What else has been going on? Yeah, I was really honoured. There was an article that was written in the careers and business section of the Fairfax outlets about um, what we've been doing at Sleep Hub and some of the information we've been putting out about sleep. And the interesting thing that 
they were interested in and why they contacted me was how a medical professional and medical specialist can use that sort of content to engage with people and get really good quality information out. So, you know, I was really honoured to be asked about that and really nice for people to recognise what we're trying to do in getting out good information. That's great. Yeah, it's good. And it's quite unique really, isn't it? Because, I mean, mostly people don't have the time or an inclination. So you've been putting a lot of time and effort into it. So it's great to get that recognition. You've certainly been putting some time and effort (laughs) into it. But it's not just sleep. For me, I think of it as medical specialists. So often as medical specialists, we're not as engaged in, you know, we'll write for medical journals, Mm -hmm. focus on that, but not actually engaged so much in engaging in writing for the public, directly to the public. And at least the way the media works now, there's a lot more opportunities. Uh, Something else that's changed for me is I've got my retreat to Golden Door over the next couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to that. You're so dedicated, aren't you, to the field? I love that. <laughs> I'll take one for the team. I'll go to the health spa for four days yeah, and, and relax. But a really exciting thing for me is I've been working with them for quite a while and they really want to strengthen that relationship. So I'll be doing professional development with staff and we've also developed a weekly uh, lecture that goes into the program. So all the guests that go to Golden Door and stay there will be exposed to you know really good quality sleep information about how to improve their sleep. So the theme for this month is teens and screens. And as we've talked about, we don't want the screens to be just about teenagers. So we'll try and split it up into a section where we talk about sleep in teenagers and what's particular uh, to them. Then we'll talk a bit about the effect of light and in particular light from screens on sleep and other body functions. And then try and bring it together and talk about some practical strategies and things that people can actually do. So in terms of teenagers, as we talked about, one of the common things that we see in the clinic is Uh, teenagers or adolescents who have trouble with either getting to sleep at night or getting up in the morning. And there's a number of factors that can contribute to that. Some of the biological factors and there's also some social and developmental factors. So Sean, I'm interested in some of the work you've been involved with and your knowledge of the literature. So do teenagers have a change in their biology that makes them sleep later? They definitely have changes in biology that should relate to sleep timing. So we know that older teenagers have a delay in their internal rhythms, and we usually measure that with uh, melatonin onset in the evening. So older teens will tend to have later timing. They'll tend to have later onset of sleep as well. But there's been some interest in what the real mechanism is behind that later timing. Uh, So I published a paper uh, last year looking specifically at the impact of light on circadian rhythms. And we found surprisingly that that time in development in in the later teen, when there is more of a delay in timing, it's actually not associated with a greater responsiveness. It was actually the younger kids, the the less developed, around the 9 to 12 uh, year old age, who were really hyper responsive to light. So it's a little bit paradoxical that uh, light in the evening will delay your timing, uh, but it was really the uh, older teens who were less responsive. So we know it's not responsiveness to light that's causing this later time. It's likely to be, I think, a couple of factors, one being the slower buildup of sleep pressure. Mm -hmm. So they get less sleepy for the same amount of time awake than younger uh, younger adolescents. Mm Uh, So that's probably one thing. They're just not getting as tired as fast. Another thing might be that they have um, a longer internal day length. And there's some evidence toward that, that they have may have a slightly longer internal day length uh, than an adult. 
but these are all uh, these are all things that certainly could be investigated more. And you talked a bit about age as being a factor and something that surprised you. What about other things that might predispose one particular teenager to trouble with late sleeping, whereas another doesn't seem to get that? Right. This is something that's that's very open. So, you know, I talked about the um, responsiveness to light. When we expose ourselves to light in the evening, close to the time we would go to bed, that's actually the time of day when your body is most responsive to delaying its clock. So you're tricking your clock basically into thinking it's still daytime when it's actually night past dusk. Now, there's going to be individual differences in that responsiveness. So right now I'm studying a group of people with delayed sleep phase disorder. So they have a tendency to not be able to get to bed at normal times. Mm -hmm. And I'm investigating the role of individual differences in light sensitivity. So some teens who have a particularly difficult problem getting to bed early might be hypersensitive to light that pushes their clock later making them think that 12 o'clock midnight is is early evening. And in adults, you've shown some gender differences in circadian timing and how that relates to insomnia. Do you have a feel for any gender differences in teens? Yeah, well, you've hit on a, another study that I happen to be running right now. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm looking at sex differences in the responsiveness to light. Now, there's a theme here. It's, it's a major theme of my research is light responsiveness. And we are finding that women are more responsive to light than men. And this is very preliminary. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone listening to your podcast, don't tell anyone else. It's top <laughs> secret. Um, but we are finding that women are more responsive than men to light. Uh, so perhaps for, for women who are using a smartphone at night or tablet and looking at it, that might impact you more than it would impact a man. Do you have any evidence of, um, like, like we talk about the impact of light and that's delaying people, is it because we now have our devices closer to our eyes than, say, 10 years ago, people didn't have, you know, devices, they didn't have handheld things? Absolutely. I mean, so I, there's such a big difference in the actual amount of light hitting your eyes mm. by the closeness of the device. You can watch a TV from across the room mm. and visually it's fine, you can see it, but it won't impact you that much. There won't be actually that many photons hitting your eyes compared to when you have that light source really close. Mm. And you can tell if you look at someone either looking at a screen off their phone uh, at night in the dark or watching TV, you see a bright bathing of blue light over the face when someone's looking at the phone or tablet. Yeah. If they're watching TV, it's a completely different story. Uh, and that's, that has a major influence. You are flooding your eyes with photons with these yeah. things. One of the key problems with these uh, light-emitting devices that we use is that they're naturally very enriched in blue light. Mm -hmm. and there's a special photoreceptor in the eye that feeds into the circadian system and contains melanopsin. And this is the, the protein that reacts to the light. It is very, very sensitive to blue light. So even visually, when you look at a phone at night and you squint, that may be bright to you visually. It's much, much brighter. It, it can be like the sun to your circadian system. Uh -huh. Well, what about some of the social aspects? So, you know, Sean's talked about the phones and things. You know, for a teenager taking away their phone, it's nights no, like cutting off their hand. Yeah. You know, so what yeah. are some of the social aspects that might yeah, lead into well, think, later sleeping? Well, that's what I, I'm, I'm interested to know. Obviously, clearly there's some, some biological markers and, and there's reason for teenagers staying up. But I, I'd love, I think 
that are a massive part of it. And I don't know offhand, you know, what what the data says about that, but it's it's a cho- choice involved as well. Like there's a it's a time when they're developing more independence, wanting to do their own thing a bit more. Schoolwork becomes harder. There's more pressure on them. There's I mean, they're going out more, they're socialising, they're staying up later anyway. They don't want to miss out. Is that sense of really wanting to be connected to people and to stay up later and to, and to watch shows that everyone's talking about and all that sort of thing. So I think it's really a priority really for us to call this teens and screens like to, because if we can start with getting a handle on it for in the teenage years, then maybe the rest of us, maybe they can teach their parents and their uncles and their aunts, you know, teach, we can learn to handle a little bit more. Because I don't think for one minute we should say, right, everyone, get rid of your screens, get rid of your devices, they're all bad. We've got, we say all the time, we try to get people to unwind and particularly in that setting here with people with insomnia or people, we see a skewed sample of people who are diff, having difficulty with their sleep. A lot of people out there aren't presenting saying, they're saying, what's the problem? There's no problem at all with my, I love it, I, I have it by my bedside, I you know, have it in the bed, there's no problem for me. But we need to actually start thinking about because there are there is enormous amount of impact on people with their sleep. And if we can get it right or get some management skills around it, letting people know that you can have your devices for sure, but have a period of time when you don't you know, have an unwind period that you don't go straight from screen to, to try to attempt sleep. Of course, there's the other ways of having ways of getting rid of the blue light, like on your device. You know, you can have a, an app that has the orange screen instead of the blue screen. And I think we're going to cover that maybe a bit later but can I bring you back to that asserting independence sort mm-hmm. of stuff so is it sometimes a dynamic between parents and teenagers and yeah how does that play out in terms of bedtimes for, yeah for I, I think that well you know I'm not a developmental specialist with with children but a parent myself I think that it is a lot of limit limit setting issues like you know, parents being able to, uh, in most things, like when the kids are much younger, there's, you know, there's limit setting around a lot of things. But then it gets harder for the parent to assert themselves, particularly when they're, if they're not au fait with what's going on anyway with the with the actual technology or something they're not attached to. They haven't become addicted to that particular thing. Yeah, it's a, definitely a dynamic within the family and I think it's something that people um, do struggle with. But good communication, open dialogue, um, getting help from schools. Schools are usually really good at this stuff and there's lots of um, paediatricians, GPs. There's lots of help out there for, for people to to talk with people about uh, if they feel like they're not getting through to the teenager, not, not being able to have that limit setting. In a clinical sense, you know, I see sometimes it's a sense of control. Mm. You know, I've, I've definitely mm. seen some cases where the teenager feels like the only part of life they have some control over mm. is what time they choose to put their device down or yeah. shut their eyelids. Yeah, because every yeah. other aspect of their life is still tightly controlled. Yeah, it's controlled. really controlled, isn't it? Yeah, with school and other other expectations. Yeah, you know, and as a parent, you know, as we go from in primary school, we're very controlling about you've got to be in bed at this time, mm. and then as our kids evolve into teenagers, it's a bit hard as a parent to let that go and can mm. tend to be a bit over controlled. Mm. I think um, it it might be good to point out that in in a way, your devices can control you as well Mm -hmm. so you might be exercising your control and going to bed when you want to go to bed but one of the impacts of these devices and especially the blue light is to acutely alert you so someone is more likely to stay up maybe even later than they would want to because there's this effect of the light on their alertness you're controlling when you go to bed your your device is also controlling when you're going to bed I like that. Yeah. All right. So that's a really nice segue into just changing gears a bit and take the focus a little bit off the the teens in particular and then more on light and the impact of light. Because we hear a lot about, as you were talking about earlier, Sean, that it's it's sort of out there in the media already. We've yeah. It's out of the bag a little bit. There's bits and pieces and 
people know about it um, and the, the impact of light and screens on our sleep. So is it really, is it the biggest issue? It's probably, it's your baby, but is it, is it everything? Like do we, as clinicians, do we need to be, what messages do we need to be giving, I guess, to our, to our patients around light? Yeah, I think when it comes to light, there's, there's really three effects that it has that are, that are really important and that are going to be very impactful for sleep onset. So anyone who would like to go to bed earlier than they are should keep these things in mind. Number one is it, as I said before, it changes the timing of the clock. It's nighttime, but when you're looking at the screen, they basically give the signal, they trick the clock into thinking it's still daytime. So it's going to take a lot longer to fall asleep. Number two, as I mentioned, it's acutely alerting. So when you're looking at it, you're more alert you're not going to be able to wind down and get to sleep. Number three is that it suppresses your melatonin. So we know melatonin rises in the evening. It helps gate our sleep and promote our sleep. When you're looking at this light, it can reduce your melatonin, Mm -hmm. taking much more time uh, to go to sleep. And all of these things have been studied tons of times Mm -hmm. in many, many experiments. So it's it's very, very, very well established. So if if people want to control their their sleep Mm -hmm. and sleep at a particular time, I say they, they certainly need to watch the use of these devices. Yeah. And the thing about the way our circadian system responds to light is you think that when you take away the device, that that's it. There's no more light. But the way these particular photoreceptors act is that once they're activated, mm. it takes a they, long they time say, to turn them they, off. Yeah, they stay hot. So, so you, your eyes may be seeing no light, but there is still an effect of mm. the light that you saw minutes before. I'll tell you a little interesting anecdote that one of my patients that I'm seeing at the moment, she's a 74-year-old woman with some insomnia basically, like a lot of difficulty getting to sleep. Her psychologist, not, not me, a general psychologist, had probably heard about this about the impact of light not necessarily as you describe it on devices but so because this woman doesn't have a device she doesn't she but she does watch tv at night she does have a lamp in her room for reading and just was about to see basically was told and well-meaning and well like good science behind it she was told to actually maybe um wear sunglasses at night while she's watching tv and to have all the lights out and just have a and maybe just a tiny dimmer flick, you know, a tiny little switch in the in the corner on. And by the time I saw her, she had her anxiety was so high. It had ramped up so high that she was literally sort of freaking out, having like a panic attack when her husband would turn the light on. Or if she couldn't if she she just couldn't have her sunglasses to watch the TV. And so it took me a couple of a number of sessions to really un to get her back from that. You know that, and I don't think it was anyone's fault. I think it's just that she heard bits and pieces, and her anxiety just ramped up. So, should, so the messaging that we give about the light and the device should we stick to it with sort of handheld devices? And sort of, is it dose dependent? Like the length of time? Is it safe period of time that people can be not worried about using a device at night? Well, I'd say in general, um, within two hours of an intended bedtime, mm. it's probably not a good idea to to hold a screen up to your eyes. It's Mm -hmm. around that time for most people Mm -hmm. that their internal clocks are actually becoming most sensitive Mm -hmm. to light. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would generally say about two hours uh, before bed, you shouldn't be Mm -hmm. looking at your screen too much. Now, you mentioned before, there are now uh, ways of changing Mm -hmm. the, um, the spectral uh, wavelength of the light coming off your phone so it, it's more red tinted mm. and some of those things might help but mm. uh, it's not been studied enough mm. to to know for sure whether yep. 
You think uh, avoid is if we better. Can avoid the problem yeah. altogether. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. They, they should work. The science is there. Yeah. Uh, but we need to do more studies. Yeah, yeah. You guys have done a great job of getting out this light message. You know, I saw a case not dissimilar to Moira's, but a slightly different emphasis where someone who I thought really had very anxiety, sort of trauma driven insomnia and yet the person she was seeing the health professional she was seeing was very focused on well i she needs to be managing the light you know the light's the the problem and because the light's more tangible it's a thing you can do versus tackling the really difficult problem that can be trauma and long-standing anxiety there was a lot of focus on the light and Mm -hmm. so that's often a challenge for us is to try and see the lights not always the whole picture part of the picture but not the whole picture. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a part of the picture. And, and the regularity of it really helps as well. If okay. people, It's very controllable. You can switch the uh, light switch and yeah. you can not look at your phone. There, yeah. there are hardly things that are more controllable in your life than that if, if you want to have regular That's sleep. True. Yeah, it's easier than switching off negative thinking and a whole range of other stuff, isn't it? Now, you mentioned before, uh, Moira, there are going to be uh, differences in ambient light, different kinds of light. Um, so if someone just has regular old globes that, that have yeah. a bit of a yellow tint, yeah. it's it's not so bad. Mm. Um, TV across the room mm. is You're not so not bad. concerned about not that. Not too concerned. Yeah. But you, you can kind of tell visually that it's it's particularly bright. If the inside of your house looks like a 7-Eleven, <laughs> that's too bright. Uh, if it's just dim enough to read like comfortably a, by. A that, nice restaurant. Fine. Yeah, nice, a nice, a nice romantic restaurant. <laughs> yeah. But you can't read the re- you can't read the menu. Yeah. So if you can just read the menu, <laughs> then then that's that's yeah. probably fine. So yeah. now, we've talked a bit about the effects of light on sleep, but in fact, the effects of light are actually more widespread and have other things. There's a nice paper in Cell Biology in the last week or so looking at uh, environmental 24-hour cycles, saying they're essential for health, and if you're exposed to light across 24 hours this is in a rodent model that it really had major impacts on the health of those rodents. So what are some of the non-sleep effects of light? Light and circadian health touch uh, pretty much everything. Uh, it's, it's amazing. All the time we're discovering new ways in which disturbing rhythms are bad for your health. And you know, I, I don't want to really uh, scare anyone, but uh, there's a lot of research back back when I was in Toronto. Some some colleagues started uh, looking at uh, the effects of abnormal time timing of light on uh, heart health. So you'd you'd end up with and this is rodent models, cardiac hypertrophy. I'm concerned that in post-operative situations, when when people have just had heart surgery, that you know these are very noisy. There's a lot of uh, light in the environment at night that these aren't ideal situations for people to recover from heart surgery. And I have, I have colleagues uh, in Guelph in Canada who are, who are looking at models of uh, heart surgery and recovery from heart surgery and showing that controlling the light and having a good, good light environment is beneficial for recovery. But it, it touches a lot of things. I'm doing some work and there's been some, a lot of great work from other people on metabolism just the tendency for disruption of rhythms and uh, light at night uh, impacting how you metabolize food. So if you have a very disrupted circadian rhythm and if you're exposing yourself to a lot of light at night, for example, like shift workers do, you will tend to gain more weight and be at more risk of type 2 diabetes. So if you have lots of light at night, that same amount of food, those same calories will have a greater impact on you than someone who has 
a very regimented uh, sleep-wake cycle with very little light at night. So the light diet's not light in calories? It's light in sort of low-light environments. That's right. A light diet. Okay, absolutely. So let's move on to talking about what we can actually do. So you alluded to that a bit, uh, Sean, and I might even sort of take you into the future. You know, what does the house or the hospital of the future look like in a lighting sense if it's so pervasive and it's not just about sleep? I I think we need to – maybe going to a hospital should be a a little uh, like going camping. Okay. Where we we control the light environment so that it's we can go back to the the light environment of of our ancestors to a degree. Now this this is impractical in that you you have to do doctors and nurses have to do jobs at all times, so it couldn't be such that um, you'd have to take away all light and have people in the dark. You could control better the uh, the lights within the rooms of recovering patients, and maybe those who are in more need have a more controlled environment having them have better sleep so that they're not waking up. The first people, uh, the first thing people will do when they wake up is turn on a light. Try to have low noise environments. Try to have low or light environments if you can, if you can do that. So GE's got a consumer product. It's not, it's only sort of just been launched. So C by GE, it's the globes that have, you know, warmer wavelengths at night and colder wavelengths in the morning and you control it from your smartphone app and you know, do we all need to be installing that at home? Absolutely. Smart lighting is certainly the thing of the future. Uh, blue lights will will be alerting, uh, and there's some evidence that blue light is alerting in the day, some that it isn't, but it, uh, it could help in the day. But certainly at night, avoiding blue light. So our circadian systems are not very responsive to right, red and orange light. Mm-hmm. So if you have to expose yourself to some light, you can get enough red, orange light to move around in your environment. And to your circadian system, it's dark. Yep. Uh, so that would certainly be uh, a way to, yeah. to help circadian health. So in 2016, we haven't quite got smart lighting, not quite ready for prime time, but it's close. It so, is close. So what can we do in 2016 if we're wanting to manage the lighting in the house in the evening or the bedroom environment? Well, I've, I've seen a lot of people who have actually put in red lights in their house. So if, if they get up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, which becomes more of a problem with age, they will have red lights to turn on in their environment. Less disruption of the clock, less uh, suppression of melatonin, and they can go back to bed more easily. Yeah, come on. What's a more practical solution? The, the geeks, you and I, we're going to put red lights in our sort of light sockets, but what, what's the average person? What can they do? You can get a torch and uh, <laughs> put a little little red filter over the end of it and find your way to the bathroom. <laughs> Have a lantern. <laughs> a lantern would be good. And then what about screens? We sort of alluded to strategies to take the blue light out of screens. So what are some strategies? There's a popular program called Flux, um, which has had something like 20 million downloads. It's usually used on a laptop computer, desktop computer, and now uh, you can also get it for um, Android devices. Uh, recently, uh, Apple has has used something similar. I think they call it Night Shift. And it automatically changes, basically takes out a lot of the blue wavelengths from, from your phone. So I would certainly say, you know, update your uh, operating system if you if you have an Apple device uh, and, and it comes as part of a part of a recent update. Now, how effective are those strategies? Well, we we really have to look more into it, uh, but it should. There is no reason physically why it shouldn't work. You take away blue wavelengths, 
you should have less of an impact of this light. I, there's still going to be an impact. Like I mentioned judging the brightness of your environment, but your circadian system detects light in a very different way. So if we could see visually what our uh, circadian and light environment is, it would, it would look very different. Some things that are visually dim would be bright and some things that are visually bright would be dim. And so as we manage things in the clinic, Moira, you know, if you've got a client who's a late sleeping team, yeah. what's the sort of framework you're going to start with? And Yeah, well, this is what I want Sean to, to talk about because currently what we do um, as we talk about, pardon the pun, that we're working in the dark a little bit, that we don't really know where the melatonin rhythm really sits, what's really going on. I know there's ways that we could do that and I think there's devices, you know, portable things that will be one day very soon hopefully be coming that we can do that and check where, where the melatonin is peaking and troughing and all that sort of stuff. So at the moment we, for what I do at least, so we, we get them to actually sleep later as late as they can, like on a school holidays, for instance, and assume that that's their sort of their, their natural rhythm is in that zone and there may be their melatonin you know, minimum, temperature minimum is around you know two hours or so before their natural wake-up time. So we're hoping to, if you expose them to light after that, like at, say, you know, after midday or something like that, then and then gradually, you know, for half an hour or so of natural daylight and, and then bring it back maybe, you know, after the second or third day to make it half an hour earlier and so on and so forth till they're naturally waking around seven or eight. What are your comments on that approach? Like what 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 do you think we should be doing? What would you be doing if we got you in and came and consulted here? Well it's it is it is difficult and, and you're right. Working in the dark a little bit, there there's a lot of individual variability in your circadian time. When I say in general your your melatonin onset when you start to when your clock starts to be receptive to to light mm. and uh, delaying you yeah, it starts about two hours mm. before you normally go to bed and, and you're right your your core body temperature minimum tends to be two to three hours before a typical wake period mm. and that kind of marks the point in which light has the opposite effect of advancing or speeding up your clock mm. um, so you can you can roughly judge those times and mm. you can be wrong within you know four or five yeah. hours yeah. but but you'll probably be right more often than you're wrong so you can i think that you can for now mm. use those types of of timings mm. to judge when light is going to have the right effect for mm. for moving your clock and moving your sleep to a time you want because something we find quite commonly is that again because it's out there in the media or you know someone the parents have read somewhere or gps told them to get them in the light get them out get these teenagers up get them out in the light we know that the light will fix their body clock issue but clearly if they're opening their lights you know they're opening the blinds at 6 30 and it's nowhere near they, they haven't had their temperature minimum yet it's not going to have an effect in fact it might have the other opposite effect right and you know uh, not to get too technical <laughs> but if you if you give the light at the very, very middle of the night, there's this crossover from maximum delaying to maximum advancing. So the, the maximum slowing down and speeding up of the clock occurs at that time, which can, can send the system into what we call a singularity and, and make yeah. it a little arrhythmic. Yes. Very unlikely to happen, but but you're right, there, there could be some problems yeah. there as well. Yeah. So in general terms, I mean, in general... We always try to get people to have as much light as possible. Which is, as, I mean, people like to, they often come in with that. They say, oh, get out in the light. It's sort of a general message, but I don't know if it's necessarily the right message. Is it to, to generally get a lot of light during your day? To generally get mm. a lot of light during your day. Um, yeah, if, it, if they're getting light at the wrong time, that, that could be bad. Yeah. They might have good effects on their mood, for instance, or, or some other other things. But in terms of shifting the body clock, it's quite specific, isn't it? It is specific. Mm. And it's, it's very much around the, the morning and the evening. 
Mm. Um, of course, if you expose yourself to light right in the middle of the night when you're usually sleeping, it, it actually has a very big effect as well. Uh, but it's on the edges of of mm. night where where it's usually important for us. So if we get light in the morning, uh, we'll probably tend to wake up a little uh, or go to bed a little earlier mm. the next day. Um, light in the in the middle of the day won't have that much of an effect on the, on the mm. clock. Mm. But if you start to have a positive emotional response to light, it could lead to having too much of it and, and getting too much light in the evening and that mm. delaying your mm. sleep and having negative effects. And often the approach we see in people even before they've come to the clinic with their teens is, yeah, haul them out of bed in the morning, get the light, um, or put them into bed earlier, and neither of those approaches work. Mm. You know, that morning light's potentially delaying things further. The Putting them in bed early just sets up that frustration yeah. about not, not sleeping. Yeah. And a group I have trouble with, Moira, is when the parents, you know, dragged a teenager in by the year and say, fix my teenager. And they and might not want to be fixed. They might want to be fixed. So <laughs> you're a psychologist. Tell, tell me, how, how do I sort that out? Well, it depends. Sometimes they do want to be fixed because their, their grades are falling or they're, they're, they're feeling anxious. There's a whole lot of stuff going kind of awry for them. But I think it's very important for you to have some time without the parent in the room, mm-hmm. um, I find, and to say, well, what what's going on and what, what do you want to see change, if, if anything. But very much if you do have a program or a plan of action that the, the parent and the child and you need to be all on the same page, for mm. sure. And, and it does emphasise the importance of the education piece for me. If I can get a teenager who's smart and doing science at school and, you know, they're all smart, to understand the some of the concepts that Sean's talked about and take them on board, they can own it and they can work out mm. how to fix it and do what they need to do. Yeah. But it often doesn't go so well if the parent tries to own it yeah, and make the teenager that's right. do it. I think that's my, I mean, that's, yeah, I've just got a little bit more wisdom since come back, but that, <laughs> that the anxiety in the family, like parent-driven anxiety needs to be really, needs to be dealt with for sure. For the, yeah, so the parent shouldn't be owning the, the problem of the child. Um, if, if the, if the adolescent is say 16 plus and doesn't feel like there's an issue with it, they're not anxious in the same the same way the parents are. Oh, we can go go with yeah, work with the adolescent around getting them to own it because they're the ones that going to have to drive it for sure because yeah. the rest of their life really too to manage manage their sleep. I can see there being some anxiety about trying to sleep sleep at this time and get this schedule of sleep. For me, I would I would suggest to people just to control the light environment. So when I run studies, we have people keep regular sleep wake timing. And this is to stabilize the clock. But we don't ask that they actually sleep necessarily between these hours. All that we're trying to do is control the light. So we will tell people, you don't have to sleep necessarily. Just make sure your lights are below this level. And make sure in the morning you turn the lights up above this level. It would take a bit of anxiety out of trying to say you have to sleep at this time. Mm. Sleep at that time. Mm. It's I, easy to control light. Yeah, I really loved Kenneth Wright's work from a couple of years ago where he took the teenagers out into the woods and, you know, teenagers who were having difficulty with sleep and difficulty with the timing of sleep and then for seven days just take them out in the woods away from electricity and away from uh, artificial light and their sleep patterns improved. Yeah, it was fantastic. That was in uh, in Current Biology a few years ago. Uh, and what they found for this for this group is that when they were out camping, their melatonin rhythms sort of match the the lighting rhythms of the environment. Uh, So our our melatonin onset was around dusk and um, the offset was uh, was around dawn. 
Uh, but when people were in artificial lighting environments, they got a lot of evening light and they were all over the shop. They they were having quite abnormal timing sometimes in their melatonin rhythms. So then a little clinical pearl. So since Kenneth Wright's research, you know, when I'm seeing difficult teenagers with circadian rhythm problems, I ask them, how was your sleep on school camp? And often there's other factors on school camp as well, but it is a time when they're taken away from their usual sort of day-to-day life. So working with adolescents at the moment with very difficult sleep patterns, and on school camp, she seemed to remember that sleep was actually pretty good and then Mm -hmm. came home from school camp and it's back into sleep not working so well. So it can give you a nice insight as a clinician into sleep patterns as well. Sure, and I think it's it's a good insight into how we've changed from our natural environment. So we evolved our circadian systems over millions of years with the sun rising and and falling as our light source. Um, Now we can push a button and and get light anytime we want. Um, When we have these natural light-dark cycles, uh, it it would appear to be uh, much healthier for us. Thanks very much, Sean, for your input. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It's been really great, really useful. So if people are looking for more information on circadian rhythms and sleep, uh, there's a number of posts on Sleep Hub in the circadian rhythm section, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So this is where we have a clinical tip or a clinical pearl, and Sean, I'm going to take advantage of having you with us uh, this month. So when when I'm trying to measure the circadian rhythm, you know, I do get people to do paper sleep diaries, and they would give me a really good idea of what's going on and give me all the answers, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> so you you can get an idea of someone's circadian phase, but you could also be dead wrong. So. We've known since um, really the the 60s that human sleep and wake can really desynchronize easily from your internal circadian clock. And this is part of the problem some people are having with their sleep. They're they're trying to sleep at the wrong biological time. Uh, Unfortunately, right now, we're not at a a time when it's very easy to determine uh, circadian time of an individual. So we, we have to do this over several hours where we collect hourly samples and and measure the onset of melatonin. So it it takes a long time. It's a lot of investment. It's it's not really very practical to do in a clinical setting at all. But I can say that there are a lot of groups now developing ways to model internal timing in ambulatory settings or possibly even um, uh, with shorter assessments that could be used maybe in a few years. So I can't rely on the sleep diaries? It's it's uh, not highly reliable for a circadian phase, but you've got to work with what you've got to work with. Okay, so I'll take that as a tip. That, yeah, don't put everything in the sleep diaries. So for Picks of the Month, Moira, what's your pick of the month for this month? Well, I've just found a, a new podcast that I love. It's called the, the New Yorker Radio Hour, and it's based on obviously the New Yorker, the, the magazine. And it's actually presented by the editor of that magazine, David Renmick. I think I just I think it's great for you guys, the listeners, to have a listen to episode seventeen, which was from the twelfth of Feb, two thousand sixteen. I've only just discovered this in the last month, so I'm I'm just looking back through other things that might be of interest to me. And they actually have usually two or three topics within the hour. So this one was only about eleven minutes, and it's based on Patricia Marks, who's one of their staffers, one of the the writers for the magazine. And she went out on assignment, and she actually tested a whole lot of different sleep gizmos and tech things that. That, that you love. In fact, one that I talked about last time 
I think it was the Sleep Shepherd. Yeah. She talked about that and she talked about a number of them that she was trying. Uh, it's always just quite entertaining. It's quite interesting. Um, it's called Patricia Marks Won't Go to Sleep. Um, it's also on episode 17 it says Embracing Insomnia. So it's just a nice little thing. I think I just thought it was interesting for people to have a listen to. Great. Thank you. So my tip for the month is because with the Rio Olympics are uh, going on is have a look at some of the media articles about the Australian swim team who are using uh, glasses to block some of the blue wavelength light because they're competing late at night and trying to reduce the impact of the light late at night on upsetting their circadian rhythm. So I'm sure you're happy about that, Sean. Absolutely. You can you can control your circadian timing just by controlling your light exposure. So if, if they're trying to, uh, to help their internal timing, I'm, I'm all for that. So hopefully we win That's more good. medals with, with that approach. We'll see. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I, I know uh, colleagues of mine who, who do uh, some circadian consultations for, uh, for sports teams. And what about you, Sean? So what, what's your pick? My pick is going to be a little self-serving. So I have a, a new paper that's come out in uh, Personality and Individual Differences. The first author is uh, Ben Bullock at Swinburne. Uh, but we showed that people with earlier circadian timing tend to have uh, more of a personality trait of constraint, so more more controlled in their behavior. So people want to learn a little bit about the uh, connection of circadian timing and personality, they can look into that. I'm telling you, circadian rhythms affect everything. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be looking at that. As someone who's usually up at about five in the morning and asleep sort of very early with an advanced circadian phase. Yeah, you constraints. Yeah. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. What's coming up in the next next month? There's a few things to look out for. So in Australia, it's Idiopathic Hypersomnia Awareness Week from September 5 to 11. And Hypersomnolence Australia has run a really good campaign trying to improve awareness about idiopathic hypersomnia. So you look out for that both online uh, and in social media. Uh, the Australasian Sleep Association's annual scientific meeting is going to be in Adelaide in October from October 20 to 22nd. And registrations are open. And if you're interested in sleep, you know, come along to the meeting. It's a really great meeting. Now the theme for next month's podcast is going to be restless legs syndrome and we'll put that up on September 5th uh, so look out for that. So thanks for listening. Thanks Moira. Thank you. And thanks Sean for joining. Thanks Sean. Thank you for having me. So if you've got any suggestions for other episodes email us at podcast at sleeppub.com.au. If you've got products you want us to review or topics or questions you'd like answered send us an email. If you like the podcast write us a review on iTunes and you can subscribe to the podcast via any podcast uh, catcher or the sleep talk app. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 